Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We are in St. George doing a round of podcasts, and my friend, Dr. Tim Hollingshead, is with me. Did I say that right? Yes, Richard. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, We're going to talk about pornography in this segment. It's a subject we've talked about in the past. It's a subject that's very dear to me as a former YSA bishop who I worked with incredible men and women that were working to solve this. And I recognized I didn't have all the tools during my time to help these good people. Tim, likewise, has been a YSA bishop, and he will talk about the journey he um, experienced as a YSA bishop and really trying to do what I'd call a deep dive to fully understand how to meet the needs of the YSAs in his ward that were working to solve pornography. And that led to Tim um, starting a a business called Free in 13, which is um, a business to help people overcome pornography. I'm not even sure I'd call it a business. It's a coaching service to help people and overcome this. And as Tim and I visited before we were recording this segment, I just felt a kindred spirit here as he shared his story. I felt it was listening to my own words as I tried to meet the needs of the YSAs. Um, And Tim obviously has gone really deep on this. And I'm wishing I had met Tim about six years ago and had read some of the things that he provided because it would have given me more tools. So this is a podcast for if you're working on pornography, and many of my listeners are as you reach out at times, this will be a podcast that will help you. Tim will share things with you that will help you. And this podcast may be an answer to some of your prayers to hear things that you need to hear to be able to overcome this. Also, if you're a parent or a local leader, Tim will share things that will help you help others. And some of you may then reach out and we'll talk about how to find Tim's work and use some of the services that he's using in a professional basis. Um, Is that a fair introduction? That's a very nice one. Thank you. Tim is, tell us about, we called you Dr. Tim Hollingshead. Tell us the where the doctor came from. Well, uh, my original doctor, uh, my career was in uh, reconstructive foot and ankle surgery. And you, you might say I've gone from saving one type of soul to another type. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Thank you for all your service in your medical career. Tell us about, you know, your father of five children, six grandchildren here in St. George. We could probably do... But I'm going to go right to this day that you were set apart as a YSA bishop. Um, Maybe you remember that day still. I think all bishops remember that first day. (laughs) And then the stake president leaves. And like me, I had a line of people to visit. So just talk to us about that first day and and just what you want to share about helping the YSA solve porn. Yeah. So first, let me say this. I think serving with young single adults is the most amazing experience in life. And uh, they are truly uh, just a, 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 just a terrific time of life, full of challenges and, and, and challenges that you and I didn't have when we were growing up at that age. But my goodness, th- these these young single adults are the best. Anyway, so that first day is memorable uh, because you walk in that door of that bishop's office, newly sustained and set apart. Um, without all the answers that you're supposed to have. And uh, I think the first six, seven interviews were all about pornography. And uh, That first day. That first day. And I knew I was uh, underwater on that issue. Um, but I followed the counsel of my predecessor and did what he had done in the past, which 
was what he knew to do, which was to use local therapists and uh, use um, a 12-step recovery program and, and offer those as, as solutions. And uh, we, I kind of bumped around those first three to six months as being a bishop with this issue because uh, as I would send them out, they would come back, and within weeks, they would be back in the same issues, same challenges, same behaviors. And it was super confusing and frustrating. And they're, and they're good men and women. And, and, and I want to make that very clear. This isn't just a man's problem. This is pervasive. Um, and um, so I, my, hit, my, my experience in life being a physician, I've taught at the university level, anatomy, biology, physiology. I've done research work. I've done a lot of things. And so I figured I may not know everything, but I know how to know some things. And so I went to work to try to figure this out a little bit better for, for me. So I could, um, I really just wanted to be a better bishop and uh, be better at being a bishop and counseling these young single adults. So um, that started me on this journey of, of sort of recognizing a few things and, and changing my perception. Uh, one of the two notable things when these uh, would come in that I noticed right off the bat was one, they all claimed an addiction and two, they all um, felt they were bad people. And I thought, well, the likelihood that they're bad isn't probably correct. is not accurate. And, um, and I'm a medical professional. I understand the diagnosis of, I understand that addiction is a diagnosis, not something that we should um, capriciously use uh, this term. And, you know, we hear it a lot though. We, you know, we do. I'm, I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted to whatever, you know, it's people use it pretty glibly and, and, and inaccurately. But when it comes to this issue, it's, it's particularly concerning because um, it locks people into a, a mindset that prevents them from finding or getting out of this issue. And so I started asking them, well, <clears throat> if you're addicted, um, who gave you that diagnosis? To this day, not a single one has ever said, my therapist, my doctor, whoever told me I'm addicted. Now, in the beginning, I, I thought, well, it's just one or two coming through. I became overwhelmed by the fact that they were going off this self-diagnosis of addiction, which was so damning in a way, and, um, and added to the whole shame element of it and really prevented them from progressing. Talk about shame. Well... These are two great words in this space that I've really tried to understand that I, you're, you're speaking music to my ears as I've learned more addiction and shame. Yeah. So we, I think shame is a counterfeit for guilt. And I think if we, we have to actually go back and understand guilt and that guilt is hope when it's, when it's, when it's used not as a trip, but as a signpost Guilt can lead us to getting out of things. Guilt's the recognition that, oh, I've done something against my core values or what I believe or against a God's commandment. And uh, shame is the judgment of that. 
And what happens is that <clears throat> on one end you have guilt, on one end you have shame. And I, I actually happened to teach a, a class. Um, and, uh, and so I took my class out into this gymnasium area and I had two people line up perfectly in line so that one was about 50 yards, not 50 yards, about 10 yards behind the other. And I lined up the, the rest of the class to look at the one person and ask them, could they see the other one? And they couldn't. And then we walked around to the side, and clearly you could see the difference between the two. And the object of that lesson was sometimes we see guilt and believe that it's shame and vice versa. And we don't understand the difference between the two. And they're vastly different. So if we use guilt in the proper way, then it provides hope and actually becomes sort of a catalyst to getting out of whatever challenge that we found ourselves in. When we use shame, it, it pushes us further down the downward spiral and affects our self-esteem. It affects how we believe about ourselves. And that's exactly what was happening with these young single adults. They were misinterpreting their guilt and allowing shame to fester and believe that they were bad people and that they were addicted. Two false perceptions for their reality. I love that. And I've thought about the role of Satan in all of this. And I've recognized, it seems, I just think shame and Satan, Satan's, obviously Satan wants to bring people into pornography, which is a sin. But then I think one of his greatest tools is, is what you, how he causes you to feel, especially with shame, because I love what you taught about guilt. To me, that's what Christ would want to fill everybody with, is that feeling of hope. Because everything I know about the gospel of Jesus Christ is hope. And if I've messed up and I'm feeling a little guilty, I can recognize the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ's atonement. But it seems like shame is one of Satan's biggest tools just to keep me feeling really bad about myself with no hope. And that was his number one tool in the garden. Shame. That's what started it. So if you look at that, the if you look at shame and guilt being on the same plane, you could put the atonement as the fulcrum in between. And when you when you use guilt the proper way, it lifts you. And but if you use shame, it actually sinks you. Anyways. Love that. So yeah, if I'm a YSA listening and I'm working through porn, just share other thoughts that you would share with me to give me to help me. So um, as part of this journey, understanding the issue that um, I I ran across uh, President Oaks uh, 2015 October Ensign article, and I recommend everybody to go read it. I believe it's entitled "Overcoming the Trap of Pornography." In that article, he talks about the spectrum of, of, of pornography use and the past misperception that it, where we focus primarily on the two polar opposites, one being exposure, the other being addiction. In this article, he, does, he gives more light to the fact that it's a spectrum of use and that few are addicted. Now, I don't want to downplay the potential addictive nature of pornography, uh, because it does have that potential. But what I want to make very clear is that there's this gap from first exposure to, to addiction 
that we have overlooked for years and continue to overlook. And most, um, well, I love that phrase, by the way, Tim, the gap between first exposure and addiction. I just love the visual of that. That seems like a pretty wide gap. It's a, it's a huge gap. And most, um, young men, young women, young single adults, and I will even say young marrieds are falling that gap. And it, um, the addiction therapy world is a $40 billion industry. And it's easy to focus on that, on the polar extremes, than to figure out what's in between. And I'm not saying they're doing a bad job. I'm just saying we have overlooked this gap. And this is where we can do our work. So um, when you understand, when you read that article, you understand that there is this gap that exists that uh, most are not addicted. That got me thinking about, well, what do I say to these people? If they're not addicted, what is it? So in my research, I also understood that to get to addiction typically starts with curiosity. Curiosity can go into experimentation, which often leads to habituation or creating a habit. From habituation, can you can develop a, a compulsion, and from compulsion, you may actually advance into an addiction. And the diagnosis of that is a very subjective thing, meaning it's different for everybody. And it really takes a very skilled and and excellent um, practitioner to make the accurate diagnosis. Most, I will say, with the use of pornography, especially in the age group that I deal with or I have dealt with, um, are not addicted. And over after interviewing well over 200 individuals, men and women, not a single one has ever been able to tell me or bring me a note from their provider confirming that they have an addiction. Interesting. So in, in, in evaluating this, we realize there's, it's, it's not just about shame. It's not just a moral issue. It's a physical, emotional, and spiritual thing. And it's sequential. You can get, it it is a trap. Let me make that very clear. Pornography is a trap with the potential for addiction. Let's make that very clear. Most are stuck in the trap. And you can get out of the trap. It's it's not easy in in the sense that it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time, but you can do it. So in learning about this, I realized... I actually like the word trap because there's less shame with that. If I'm in a trap, that feels better to me than if I have an addiction. It, I mean, I realize some people do have an addiction, but I like that word because it, it seems temporary to me. I'm thinking of an animal trap. I'm thinking just that word. I've never thought about that word before, Tim, until right now in a deep way. But trap doesn't feel permanent to me. Yeah, thanks for saying that because that's so accurate. Um, when you're trapped, there is a potential for freedom. You have a way to get out. But let's talk about the trap a little bit so you understand why it is a trap and how and why you can get out. So it starts with the physical piece of this thing. Um, the adversary is very... Uh, is understands the human body, understands us probably better than we understand ourselves. 
and knows how to create counterfeits. That's his great deal in life, contention and counterfeits. And um, he has taken uh, a God-given gift that we all have, which is this basic sense of reward, right, that he's given to us that helps us build interpersonal relationships and feel reward from that, and even into our most intimate experiences. And he has built a counterfeit to that through pornography. So we have love and we have pornography. And if you list the attributes of both in columns, they never intersect, except for one thing, they both affect the same part of the brain. Interesting. Pornography will uh, puts this system on overdrive. True love, and, and using this system for real interpersonal relationships, has a limited effect. In other words, it spikes and then uh, over time drops away, and that's the way it's designed to work. But with pornography, what happens is that it spikes and continues to spike until it drives uh, sexual experience such as masturbation. Mm -hmm. And that all drives uh, secrecy. It drives uh, dissociation and uh, kind of builds up the walls and uh, isolates these individuals. Well, after you tap into that enough, by the way, the adversary gets the, 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 the way that it's built, right? Um, drives practicing it. It's <laughs> the best way to say it, I think. Mm -hmm. And as you practice it, you create neural pathways. And neural pathways become coping mechanisms. And so as a naive 9, 10, 11-year-old, and you're getting into this, and you don't know what these feelings are, and you're being exposed, and you act out, and uh, you really don't understand few years down the road, you start realizing, you come to an awakening, oh, I'm, I might be doing something I shouldn't be doing. But by now, you've got this mechanism, and that's part of the trap. And so if you're sad, bored, tired, angry, whatever, this becomes your go-to in dealing with and controlling your feelings. Uh, I've sat with one individual after another who has expressed this very thing. And this is one of the patterns that I noticed early on, which was, yeah, when I don't feel good, I get on social media or I do gaming or I binge watch. And that leads me to finding things that, that creates more boredom, frankly, and frustration. And that leads me to looking for pornography. Very few just ju just dive into it. Some do, but most kind of have a pattern of getting there. Anyway, so the trap is practiced. You create this neural pathway. You create this coping mechanism, a negative coping mechanism. And then they can't figure out how they can't get out of it. Because what eventually it does is creates an abnormal sexual cycle. And... Um, um, that affects the neuro, neurochemicals, the neurotransmitters and hormones, which get out of balance, which also drive, guess what? Emotion. 
So with all that out of whack, and you're dealing with this life, which is full of now more anxiety, more stress, because of the electronic internet world, uh, the tendency is to go to that and consume more of it. Well, that then uh, will kick in binge mechanisms in your brain and continue to strengthen this cycle to the point where some people are using pornography maybe daily or weekly or whatever it might be. But typically there's, uh, there's a pattern to it. There is a frequency and a cycle, and we are all, look, we are physical, moral human beings, and we all have cycles, sleep, wake, hunger, thirst. It's all part of life. And um, this, how this affects the emotion, then you can actually create a condition, uh, what we call dopamine depletion, where uh, it affects libido, it affects um, uh, um, your outlook on life, and it creates a hopelessness, a depression. One of the studies that we hope to do um, is to um, correlate the over-prescribing of mood-altering medications with men and women who are using pornography. Interesting. Uh, we we believe that there's a that this is going on, and that physicians and prescribing uh, uh, health practitioners may not be asking all the right questions. And pornography, you should be in there. Interesting, because it yeah, and just think of that. Just think of the the uh, how that all then starts to shape how we think and what we do, and how it pushes down, pushes down, pushes down on how an individual feels. This is why they would come in and say, "Bishop, I'm not a good person. I'm addicted." They were trapped, and and so the physical and emotional elements have a direct effect on their spirituality because now their self-esteem is gone. And many of these are wonderful return missionaries. Went on their missions, did terrific work, came home and within days in some cases are back yeah. into it and can't figure it out. Well, this is why, because it's a trap. And, and you really, in my experience, and, and let me be very clear about this. Everything I'm talking about today is not endorsed by the church. This is not a church program. Yeah, and this isn't a church podcast, but we're trying to talk about church things. Church things yeah. in a very thoughtful way. But I want to be very careful to not mislead anybody. But this has a direct effect on spirituality and, and how you perceive yourself and the answers you receive and how you move forward in life. And to clear that up, you've got to understand and move through these two other, these other phases. You have to get control. You have to break the cycle. You have to work through the emotional fog that happens and then build on the spirituality that comes after that. It's very sequential and it works. It's like unraveling all the practice that you've had, if, if an individual may have, in uh, in getting into the trap. I love what you're sharing with us here. Um, and I love you setting up the trap and just the process. And I, that's been my experience too, working with YSAs is that it often starts really young at 10, 11, 12. And, 
and they don't really understand what's going on. But I like you're talking about the neurons, the pathways getting rewired. That resonates with me and this little chemical spill that occurs as somebody is triggered and sort of then what happens or doesn't happen. Um, but I do love just everything you're sharing. Um, what are some of the things to get people out of the trap? I know that's, you know, the now the business that you've started is to help people get out of the trap. But what, if I'm a YSA bishop or a YSA listening, what would you kind of counsel me? Well, I think the first thing to recognize that everybody's a son and daughter of God, that they are uh, endowed with great gifts and they are good people. I think that's where it starts. And to affirm and reaffirm that with the individual. I think looking at that first as maybe you're not addicted. And let's look at this as a trap first and let's prove out if you need to see therapy. Now, sometimes <clears throat> individuals have deep emotional scars that are well beyond a bishop's pay grade and need to, need to have therapy, need to go see somebody who's skilled in dealing with some of those things and unraveling those issues. But this can be done concurrently with that. And that will, that will go a long way to helping resolve this because sometimes pornography use is negative coping. Now we often say, and we often believe that pornography is the problem. It is a problem, but it's a tool of the adversary. It's a tool of society. Pornographers, it's a hundred billion dollar industry and their main goal is to get somebody to masturbate to their product, to complete that neural cycle. Once they do that, they know you've got you. Now let's talk about gaming for a second. The gaming engineers don't want you to win in a game. They want to frustrate you. Interesting. And why? Because you're going to come back and play that game again Interesting. to win. So the games aren't easy because they want you to fight through and stay with the game. What happens with gaming, though, is it creates the same level of frustration. And there's, a, and there's loads of research on this. And it's a lateral move right into pornography. Same thing we're seeing with social media use and binge watching. So we have to be very careful how we use these things in, in our society now. And that's why I say that pornography is a tool. Because they're, they're going to use, to use pornography to solve this negative feelings that they have. Um, <clears throat> trying to get back to your question. I often get off the, get on a different soapbox. You're doing, there's, this is all good, Tim. <laughs> uh, but I love what you said. <clears throat> I love the first thing you said is you've got to see yourself as a child and son of God who is worthy. And by that very definition is worthy of their love. I've always felt really strongly that nothing a YSA do can t take them outside of God's love for them. Yeah. And their heavenly parents desire to continue to bless them. And I think a lot of YSA self-determine that they're no longer worthy of God's love. And they'll sort of say, well, I'll solve pornography, then I'll start praying again, and I'll start feeling that I might be worthy of God's love. And I just think that's one of Satan's tools to create that feeling that I don't, I think Heavenly Father wants everyone to talk and pray and be, feel like they're worthy of their help. Thank you for saying that because that brings up <coughs> the rest of the answer, which are two things. Good. Pride and uh, self-judgment. So these are the two things that are the, some of the, are the largest uh, hurdles to overcome in overcoming the trap and escaping the trap. 
many young single adults, many people who are trapped in pornography also get trapped in this false belief that, well, if I try harder, if I'm more difficult on myself, if I'm more critical, um, I'll do better. And I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. It's very rare. It's difficult to do this on your own. Um, being accountable to somebody. It's just like, for example, um, I used to like to do triathlons. I know you're looking at me now and you're thinking, wow, really? Because you don't <laughs> look like it. This has been a while. Uh, and I had a training partner, another doc friend, another doctor friend. And so I, if I knew he was showing up that morning to go swim or ride a bicycle or run, guess what? I was more likely to show up. And if he wasn't going to show up, maybe I would make it or not. I don't know. Accountability goes a long way. And in this case, accountability is, is critical. Uh, a non-judgmental, loving individual who guides s someone can help them get out of the trap. Now let's talk about the self-judgment piece. We are our worst judges our harshest judges. And yeah, like I said, I have an opportunity to, to be with young single adults and teach them on a regular basis. And when we talk about this subject, I am, I am shocked at how true that is with them. They're, they're not lenient and they believe that if they exercise self-compassion, that they are sinning almost. So I like to use the example of the, uh, when the Savior was in the temple teaching the people and the scribes and the Pharisees, brought the woman who was caught in adultery to him to judge her. Well, we all know that that was a trap. They were going to try to trap the Savior, right? If he ruled one way, he'd be against the law, the law of Moses. If he ruled the other way, he'd be against the government. And he would be captured and tortured or, or imprisoned or whatever they were planning to do with him at that point. Um, and I th it's just such a beautiful lesson because as they, and I don't know if you've dealt with, uh, Middle Easterners, not too many people from the Middle East. I've, no. I've done business in the Middle East. They're great people, but they have a different affect when they're interacting. It's very, it seems very abrupt and very abrasive sometimes and loud. So I can imagine that these scribes and Pharisees are in the temple and they're yelling at the savior what we would consider yelling to get his attention because they, if you read it's like two or three times, they're saying, Lord, what would you do? You know, I'm paraphrasing of course. And he simply kneels down, which was, which was uh, tradition. If you're going to ignore somebody, not listen to them. He knelt down as if to say, I'm not going to be the judge. I'm not going to answer this question. Scribbled something in the sand and stood up. And then what did he say? He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That's right. And then what happens? Nobody throws a stone. No one says anything. <laughs> they start to leave. Oldest to youngest by Hebrew tradition. Interesting. I didn't know that. Until he and that woman are the only ones in the temple. And now, what does he do? To, what does he say to her at this point? He says, woman, where are thine accusers? And she says, no man, Lord. And then what does he say? Neither do I. Yeah. 
Isn't that amazing? He is the Lord. He's the judge. And he doesn't demean her. He doesn't deride her. He doesn't chastise her. He doesn't shame her. Shame her. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Go repent. An invitation. Isn't that powerful? And so we're taught to forgive 70 times 7. It includes us. I hope everybody can feel the spirit of what Tim's sharing, because I really believe that we are our own worst critics, and we look in the mirror and we just see weakness and our mistakes and maybe even physical flaws that aren't our fault. And I think that, you know, we, we just, then it makes us more likely to not make good decisions versus the way the Savior sees us, the way he saw that woman. And I love that parable being there for for me, it answers the question, how does my Heavenly Father and my Savior feel about me as a mortal person at times making mistakes? And in that example, you understand, begin to understand charity, which is which is the love from Christ and a love for Christ. Right? The love from Christ was the forgiveness and the and the and the invitation to repent. And the love for Christ was for her going and repenting. It's just so powerful and so deep. Uh, it, it really can change how you think about this. Now, since then, a lot of research has been done on this whole self-compassion thing and how to use guilt, and it proves it out. It proves out that when we exercise self-compassion, it's more powerful in changing behavior than, than dwelling on guilt and shame. Interesting. We did a podcast that's about 195, it's in the 190s if anybody wants to find it. It's Tim and Amy Pearson, and he talks about his 20-year, and he calls it an addiction <clears throat> to porn <clears throat> that almost cost him their marriage. And But the th one thing that, the, so we talked about how he put it behind him, and this is someone that I think is addicted. He was comfortable taking on that label after 20 years, and the thing that fundamentally shifted for him was a deeply spiritual experience where he felt God's unconditional love for him. And the feeling of that coming over him somehow was the, the turning point as start as the process. Maybe it was a 13-week, <laughs> free and 13-week type of experience, but it was the key thing. So I've thought about that a lot. And not everybody, that's not the road for everybody. It may not come different ways and different people, but I love that's the very first thing you shared in this is that he fundamentally felt God's love for him. And somehow that maybe de-shamed him or it gave him hope or it it fundamentally changed how he felt about himself. Maybe it's he was hard on himself, Tim, like you're saying, and but to feel God's love for him as somebody who's worked on this for 20 years, and to still feel God's love for him, maybe that helped him feel like I'm okay and I can actually put this behind me. Let's go back to the two columns we talked about, love and porn and <laughs> pornography. Under love, there's compassion and caring and kindness, all the attributes that we're talking about. That's what changes people. That's what Christ brings to the world. It's, it's so deep and powerful and profound, I think we overlook it sometimes. And, um, and that's part of the, the counterfeit that the adversary is trying to, to put up in front of everybody.
And there's so much more to it, you know. There's uh, and and I I don't want to if somebody's listening to this and they um like the individuals in the podcast you just mentioned um uh have an addiction or talk about addiction. I I'm not I want to be very careful and say that I'm not uh, saying that you're, they're not addicted. Right. I don't know their case. I don't know. Sure. What I do know is that in this gap, we now know we have a chance. Yeah. And that's the sweet spot of a YSA assignment, the YSA age group, because I felt the same thing that very few were addicted because they'd go long periods of time without acting out. Most of them you know, that took on that label as we tried to, I called it the iceberg. We could see pornography above the iceberg, mm-hmm. but if we kind of put pornography on the shelf and tried to understand, this is me being non-clinical and not having very many <laughs> tools. We tried to understand what was in the bottom of the iceberg, the things you're pointing out, loneliness, stress, anxiety, yeah. the need for connection, low self-worth, other things that were going on. If we could kind of deal with those and sometimes get the therapy to deal with those often, the pornography would lift. Often if they just were in a healthy relationship with, you know, dating, it would just lift. I was, they were kind of surprised. Go, wow, I haven't acted out in months. And I go, what's changed? I'm in a really good relationship. And it was, a, it kind of helped me understand they're not addicted because they go long periods of time without acting out. But then, as you know, and um, then the cycles can sometimes, you know, come back and the triggers can come back. And that's not saying getting married solves pornography. I think both of us know that that is a false narrative. <laughs> well, that's the tidal wave that's coming, <laughs> right? Unfortunately, with when we don't deal with it and resolve this, and I'm going to talk about the 13-week thing here as part of that. Good. But when we don't deal with that and we take this into a marriage, um, that's the tidal wave of broken relationships and divorces and things that we're starting to see the beginning of right now. And, uh, and we think back to what we thought, said about in the very beginning about the adversary's tool, what's one of the best tools to destroy the future? Is to create something that's secret and guarded, that's dragged into a marriage, that creates betrayal trauma, and splits a family. It's devastating. And it's so important to look at this gap and say, okay, here's our battleground. This is where we get to win one-on-one battles doesn't mean that we're not going to keep fighting for those who might have an addiction and need to have a different and more accurate approach, but it means right now we have an opportunity. So homeostasis is something that 13 weeks is what it refers to. What we know uh, is that it takes about 13 weeks or 90 days or so for the neurochemicals, the neurotransmitters, and the hormones all caught up in this reward system to get back into normal levels or homeostasis. That's what that means. And from the, from the, and that begins, that timing begins from the last time pornography is used and, act, and you've acted out sexually. It takes that much time to, to resolve this. And you talked about purpose and dating, how that changes and why they go back. Well, you can, you can take out a sequence, some elements. For example, purpose is one of the elements. If you take that out of, out of sequence, yes, you can be free of using this because you have a new focus, new purpose. But without resolving the fundamental issues that get you to the element of purpose, the likelihood of coming back and having uh, and, and getting reinvolved in that is, is pretty high. 
And so it's really important to look at this as a sequential progression, um, which is just like almost everything in life. You know, when we, we talked earlier about line upon line, precept upon precept, God knows how we're built. He built us. He knows how we're going to respond. He knows that we need to learn a little bit at a time. We need to go through a progression and then we get it. I work with young single adults who are in a university. None of them walk in first day and start taking graduate classes. They all take the basic courses, 101, whatever. Eventually, four years later, they're in their graduate, their, their, their upper class classes and go on to graduate classes. That's how we're built. That's how we learn. And uh, it's exciting uh, to be able to have a discussion about this kind of thing normalizing the discussion frankly yeah in a in a healthy environment and in correct context that gives people hope and that's what we need to be doing more of that's what we're about so free and 13 is is the 13 just tell is, us the website if someone right now wants to go to your website tell us how to find that it's very simple it's free in 13.com f r e e i n 13.com okay you can find a lot of information there. And uh, for ecclesiastical leaders, we have a special thing so that they can make it a little bit more affordable. And frankly, this is um, it's, it's priced at a level that is at or less than a visit to a therapist. And is it online or is it in person? Right now it's all in written format uh, because there's, a, we, there's so much good research about connecting uh, with written material and writing and interfacing that way and getting away from screen time. And, uh, and so we, it's, it's a, in book format, frankly. Good. So if I'm interested, I don't come to, re it's not like re I'm meeting a counselor or a life coach. I'm buying materials online that help me solve pornography. Yeah. Great question. Let me, let me explain a little bit further on that. So, okay. so this is a, a mentor guided program. So there's an instruction manual or a mentor manual that's written so that anybody could pick this manual up and guide somebody through the process. It has all the and questions. could be a parent, a friend, a church leader. And Correct. I believe this is, re it's religious program, but it's not LDS focus. It's Christ, it's just religion neutral? It, well, it's faith neutral. Faith neutral. Uh, I guess it, religion neutral sounds like a weird term. <laughs> that would be like agnostic. Yeah, that might be a little different <laughs> program. Yeah. But this is faith neutral. Uh, pornography is pervasive. It, it doesn't attack just one religion or another. Or it, It's pervasive. And, uh, and so we wrote this in a, in a faith neutral um, manner so that everybody could use it. And so is mentoring manual, and is there then um, an individual manual, or what do you call that? Yes, so there's a mentor's manual, which, uh, again, has all the questions, has all uh, has contingencies built into it, and teaches the individual, the mentor, how to deal with the responses that they will get. It also provides the assignments that you give the participant. Participant. Um, and we have a parent's manual. For those who might be 18 and younger dealing with this, and a participant's manual for those 18 and older. Now, that 18 isn't a hard set age, but parents and individuals can kind of gauge. Is the mentoring manual like the parent's manual, but it's just the parent manual is a 
parent version of the mentoring manual? So the parent manual and the participant manual are virtually the same in content written towards a, that particular audience. Got it. Uh, and the mentor's manual is that plus the mentoring uh, element of it, the questions, the assignments, the the contingencies, how to deal with setbacks, how to look at things. Um, and there's also a, a journal that's available that allows, uh, it is quite critical as a matter of fact, because it allows the individual to track positive key indicators and a place to write down their, their assignments that they're asked to do. Is, um, I forgot a question. It was just in my brain, Tim. It was about the mentoring manual. Um, but it's, it's, it, could it be a wise say bishop? Could it be just anybody that's sort of helping? It could be a friend. Just who is the target again for the mentoring manual? The mentoring manual uh, would be someone. Who, uh, yes, uh, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the rest of the answer is the mentoring manual is scripted so that anyone can be a mentor. Now, if it's a uh, if you're seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, whatever, and you want to do this. Without using your parents, you could ask an ecclesiastical leader, you could ask a friend, you could ask somebody. But, but the the idea behind a mentor is that they'll be non-judgmental. I like that. But that you will be accountable to them and you will follow the instruction and uh, be serious about the follow-up. So free in 13 is not meant to me, me going online, buying a manual. If I ha I'm in the trap of pornography and just solving this isolated, it's meant... For me to go to this website and get another person involved that's a mentor to me to help ask me questions and guide me through it's so it's meant to be a team effort <clears throat> it's most effective that way most effective that way now in some cases uh, I won't say an individual couldn't do this on their own but I think the likelihood of greater level of success happens when an, a mentor is involved or there's accountability to someone else do you feel called to do this? Because I, I, you know, I was released in 2016. I served from 2013 to 2016. And I still remember the name of the young man in 2013 that walked in my office, the very first guy that wanted to talk about porn. And we talked about porn for the next three years, like you did. And, and I felt I wanted to take some of that learning and share it because I recognized as I walked into that assignment, I had very little resources. And as I reached out, it was very little resources. Do you feel called to kind of do this after all you've um, learned? That's a great question. Um, I, let me explain it this way. When I got released as a bishop, why I say bishop, my wife who was with me through all this development and I bounced ideas off of her and we talked about things. Um, she said, you know, you've got to write that down. It helps so many young single adults. Other people could benefit from that. And and that turned into sort of a calling, I felt, where uh, I spent the next year, I, I eliminated everything else in my life professionally and focused on writing this program so that people, so we can win this one-on-one -on -one battle with pornography so that we can take back our loved ones and that we can, we can be successful. You know, I, I don't believe that we'll ever stop pornography. I wish we could, 
but we can win the one-on-one -on -one battles. We can take back our, our sons and our daughters, our spouses, our friends. We can help them get out of the trap. I love that. And I think callings come, and um, we both have callings right now, you know, through normal ecclesiastical channels, but I think, you know, God wants us to act on our impressions to bless his people and then in an informal way that doesn't come with an LDS tools calling that we could look up <laughs> and see what it is. And I, I think that's just part of our baptism covenants and part of our commitment to lift and help others burdens. And I think we have at times where we have an insight that, the, and so I love, I love your wife's answer. <laughs> I love, you know, that you need to write this down. And I wish our listeners could see these manuals. They're not, you know, they're here in the desk as we're doing this podcast. They're, they're not small manuals, and I, I think that's great. Um, and I can just sense so much work in your heart has just been put into this. Um, you know, let me share some of the, most of what I learned from this was from the YSAs working to solve porn. It was interesting that as I listened to them, um, even and their personal sort of revelation and the things that they were finding helpful, and I came to the conclusion one day that, this is peaking because, you know, I'm 58 and I'm wired just the same way as a YSA. I just hadn't, didn't have any access. And so they're the ones first generation dealing with 24 seven access. And I've always felt that they will become the fathers, the mothers, the priesthood leaders of tomorrow. And because they've walked this road that they will have better insights. And because of the programs like you're doing three and 13, I agree that pornography won't end, but I, I've just felt hope that this is peaking and that we will have, and that the next generation will do better because of the current generation that has to fight this for the first time in a unique way. And, and maybe that fits with my thoughts of not shaming this generation. Cause I, I think I would be right where this generation is if I were in that generation. And I don't know if I would be any stronger or weaker than them, but I just recognize how difficult it is and how much hope it gives me. There'll be the fathers and the mothers. And does that f fit with you? Do you? How do you feel about that thought? Uh, absolutely, yes. That fits with me. I, I look at it this way. You and I grew up with our parents doing their best job with the environment we grew up in, which was we didn't worry about riding our bike cross town at night. We carried a dime in our pocket to use a payphone. <laughs> life was simpler and, and, and a lot less complicated and, and safer. Our children are raising this generation against stuff we don't even understand. And the level of anxiety and depression yeah. and challenges that are brought on because of this environment that our grandchildren are now growing up in is something they have to learn to deal with. And I believe God has given us all the capacity to do that. You know, we talk about reward system. He also gave us a superpower in our brains. It's our prefrontal cortex. It allows us to override the reward system. It allows us to be able to make choices. It allows us to do things that result in self-mastery. But when we're stuck in a trap, we need help to get out. So this generation is growing up with things that are just 
yeah. their plague. Uh, pornography plagues everyone, but the electronic aspect of it, the accessibility yeah. that makes it so pervasive is the issue, I think. The other thing that OYSA taught me, and this may be part of your program, was um, a written prevention plan, which was sort of this, it was a it was a document that no one else would see, maybe their advisor or their mentor, but it was sort of like, um, you know, as they were trying to get out of the trap of pornography, they would write a prevention plan, which are kind of the, if I get triggered, these are the things I need to do. And then if they act out, they would talk about, try to understand what happened, what was the backstory, what did I do differently or what led up to that? Was it three days of not doing something that finally on the fourth day? And it was kind of this living document that, and then it kind of harnessed the cognitive side of their brain. Sometimes in the moment of being triggered, they had just more tools to, because they'd written about it. They'd written their prevention plan. Does that resonate with you? I've never, that was just, that seemed really helpful for me as I was helping YSAs. That's an integral part of the program. Is it? Yeah. It, you know, we, so we identify arousal cues. Yeah. It, frankly, if you take arousal cues. I learned cues, not to, I sort of want to de-shame people from having arousing cues and saying that's probably a, normal to have thoughts that come into your brain that cause just a little bit of a chemical spill. Well, it, it creates the, the um, you know, it, it creates anticipation. Yeah. That's what it does. So arousal cues can be um, uh, environmental or emotional where you're at and how you're feeling. Uh, typically that's what triggers or starts these arousal cues. And we can control a lot of those environments. We can control some of that, but some of it we're not going to control. And, but we do know this, if we take arousal cues out of the picture, people don't go look at pornography. The desire to view pornography is not there. It's driven by arousal cues. So if we can protect, inform, in, enable, empower an individual to recognize what their arousal cues are and to manage that behavior can change. I love that. And be, but behavior has to be practiced to change. In other words, take for example, a professional athlete, you know, uh, let's take a soccer player. Soccer player starts in the little peewee leagues, kicking the ball, running to a goal. Learn and as you go through the different levels of schooling, junior high and high school, you learn fundamental skills, but practice is nearly the same every day you go. And you get to the college and the pro levels, guess what you do every day? You go out and practice fundamentals. Why do you do that? It's to create muscle memory. It's to create those neural pathways so that when you're in the moment of crisis or a critical moment when you're playing the game, you don't have to think through balls in the front of me to my left. I have to step this way. I have to rotate my hip. I have to look over here. I have to swing my leg. I have to kick my foot. No, it just happens in a moment, in an instant. That's what practice does. That's what the adversary traps people with, is that naive practice of this viewing of pornography it becomes a coping mechanism. I called them trigger. You called them... Arousal in, cues. Arousal cues. I like that better because trigger makes me think of a gun and somebody's fingers on that thing and it's going to go like off that. and 
injury. Arousal cues, and so I would guess some are control. So I'm thinking one arousal cue is environmental. So some of the wise days that tell me I just come home from school and I'm alone at 3.30 and I just start the cycle or right before I go to bed. And and so we talk about what we could do. And I love your soccer analogy of sort of talking what you can change the environment. So is that a time when you never have the phone in your room? Because you're probably going to go to bed at night and you're, so you can't change that environmental cue of not sleeping at night, but you can pull the phone out of the room. And, and to write that down often then gives the cognitive, if I'm using the right medical term, I've always felt there's this forward thinking, longer vision part of my brain that can take me out of a moment of, of trigger. I'm still coming back to trigger arousal <laughs> cues. Um, so yeah. And then some, then I've thought about just some of the wise days would say, yeah, I just get triggered when I'm on campus and I see a beautiful, you know, girl. Well, let's talk and about that, that for and a second. That's, and so how do I not see a beautiful girl when I'm on campus? Yeah. You're going to see beautiful people. So here's the difference, in the, and, and, and this is what we teach, the difference between arousal and attraction. Society, media, and entertainment has confused the two, put them into one, and even replaced one for the other. Attraction is wanting to be in the presence of someone. Arousal is a sexual desire. Interesting. But think about our media and our gaming. It's all about driving arousal. Confusing the two. It's all about saying attraction is arousal. You can't control it. But we can. If we look at it correctly, you can recognize somebody who's beautiful. You know, And that's a non-shaming attraction Yeah, that doesn't necessarily start the chemical spill or lead to arousal. Yeah. And, you know, uh, look, young single adults... They're going through a tough stage of life with uh, sexuality, understanding what that is all about for them. And, but God has given us a superpower to figure it out and to master it and understand the difference and stop accepting the counterfeits of the world. This is really helpful. Yeah, um, this is... I love the way you're, I love your answer to that. And I just sense that you've been thinking about these questions, writing about them and your brain and these manuals are just a wealth of knowledge. So I'm really encouraging everybody to go to three, free and 13. Um, one of the questions I had, I'll share where, you know, one of the questions the YSA is if it's a YSA man with a current pornography problem, should he tell his girlfriend? And I've always felt he should, it may not, shouldn't be in the, maybe not in the first date or the first three dates, but if they're starting to go steady, it should be before they're engaged. Um, and it, So I've kind of called it in the early going steady stage when you're saying you're Facebook official, you're not dating anybody else, and you're getting to know each other. If a YSA man or woman has a pornog current pornography problem, they ought to talk about it because it's not going to go away just by getting engaged and getting married. Any thoughts, advice you'd give to the YSAs on that one? And then I think the woman obviously could end that relationship, but I've always felt that doesn't need to be a firm rule, that every situation is different. Um, every woman should have the right to end that relationship, but I've always felt that some, I'm using the man and the woman, assuming the man has the pornography, it, it may not always be, it may not be the right decision for that woman to end that relationship because some of the very best men I know aren't addicted to porn and she may be 
ending a relationship with someone who's really a wonderful person that is just in this temporary trap that can be solved, even though it's not her responsibility to solve it. So I've given you a lot there and I bet you've got (laughs) another hour of opinions on that one. Well, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it's a case by case kind of a thing, but let's, let me talk about it. Um, uh, should they date? Should they tell them? Uh, I think at some point in the relationship, you have to be forthright and you have to say something. Um, I think it's better to work on something and get to a point and say, this is where I'm at. I'm making progress. But it's also important not to lead somebody down a, a road that's not going to go anywhere. So you have to be honest with yourself about that. It's a tough, it's a tough reveal. And I have coached many of my young single adults through that. And um, I always ask them how they feel about the individual. And if they feel that they might go somewhere. And my question to them is, what do you want to do about it? How do you want to deal with this? In, in, the, in the context of, do you want to create a long-term relationship? If that answer is yes, then I ask him, when do you want to tell them? And many of them will say, well, I feel like I got to tell them right now. But that comes from a panic mode sometimes. And you got to think through that and work through that. And so case by case, sometimes I would recommend that, you know, give this a few weeks. Let's work on this. Let's get you to a point where you have some confidence back because this is what happens. As you get out of the trap, you go through first 30 days of kind of clunking around and, you know, understanding there's some avoid in your life and you're trying to figure all this stuff out. The second 30 days is what we call the mind fog. And you get kind of confused about things and tired and your emotions are kind of a wreck uh, because everything's just trying to get back into normal homeostasis again. And then that last 30 days is where they transform, where you actually see their countenance change, their eyes brighten up. They, They remember they like doing their hobbies. They remember they enjoy life. They, they become animated. It's, I mean, it is so exciting and, and fun to see that evolution and get them to that point. And sometimes I'll ask them at what point are you comfortable sharing that? Most of them want to do it when they feel confident again, because they want to say to that girl or boy, this is where I've been. I'm here now. And I'm doing so well. And I'd like to continue if you can deal with it. Now, I have to say this. Not all these worked out well. Some of them, the girls or the the girl or guy couldn't deal with that. And that's up to them. They They have to come to terms with that. But I think that's part of what we need to be doing a better job of is normalizing the talk about pornography, not in this context of driving people to pornography, but in the context of saying, hey, we can control this, this is on our terms. I love that. It's a great answer. And I, I think no one, no girlfriend or boyfriend should feel like they need to be the savior of somebody regarding pornography. They need to be the boyfriend or the girlfriend. Don't be an enabler, be an empowering yeah. person. And let me, I'm going to interrupt you. I apologize, Good. but I, I wanted to finish this answer. 
it is my opinion it is detrimental to your relationship to take this unresolved into a marriage the 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 betrayal trauma that can happen after you're married and the confusion just just exacerbates the shame it it catches another person up into this whole thing and it just creates a mess and i'm not saying you can't work through that but i'm taking i'm telling you it takes years in many cases to work through that so my plea would be those of you who are in this gap take care of it now just recognize okay i'm i this is part of my life look and there's not you're normal 70% of the population is involved in some level of pornography use and to think that you're going to date somebody that hasn't seen or viewed or isn't viewing pornography might not happen. And so taking a realistic view of this and and understanding how you feel and and I I don't think you have to accept uh that it's okay that somebody is looking at pornography. I think you have your, you have to define your own standards and your core beliefs. I love that answer, but betrayal trauma is not a term I understood or ever heard until episode 170, 190 for any of our listeners. And it's, it's this episode of um, Joe and Amy Pearson that came on together. And Amy talked about this trauma that she experienced from her husband. They're sitting there holding hands, um, but the pain in her life from her husband's pornography problem, you know, almost cost them their marriage several times. Yeah, and um, I hope I'll always say I don't want to use that podcast in a manipulative way towards the YSAs to sort of um, shame them. But I think they need to do what you're suggesting, Tim, is have their eyes pretty wide open that the 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 train wreck potentially that they're starting if they're taking a untalked about pornography problem into a marriage. Um, and I always felt the YSA shouldn't like fix this and then start dating. I've I, that may be the right answer. Some YSA say, "Well, I'm not going to date until I solve this," and I wasn't comfortable making that blanket statement because I felt some would do better in dating as a way to. It's I don't I don't know how to communicate that just to be able to pull them out of the trap. Although the woman can't feel like she's responsible to pull him out of the trap, just potentially feeling better about himself and having less shame would give him the added confidence to put it behind him. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's a lot won't date. They said, well, I'm not dating until I solve this. So one of the things that we encourage at a point is to date, to, to socialize, to get out of the isolation of this problem and to put yourself out there. And expect to get bumped around. And that's expect life. to get bumped around. That's life. That's that's the great thing about being a young single adult is that you have so many open options. It's an incredible time of life. And so or maybe in the early stages it's not a great idea, but within a few weeks, we start to promote dating. Get out there and meet people, be with people. We teach them how to date. That's great. This generation doesn't didn't grow up like we did, where where we were we knew how to date. I think, uh, and because they have so many electronic options and how they do things, and um, but 
when they figure this out, it's it's it can be part of the transformation. And I I love what you said. We don't fix people or cure people. We cure bacon and we fix a car. But we can help people get out of the trap. I I think to go into a relationship and say, hey, well, I can I can change this person. I don't think that's going to work. But to go into a relationship and say, what can I do to help? I think that helped. I think that works. One night in the bishop's office, I was alone, and I just pulled up an empty chair next to me and had a conversation with Heavenly Father. <laughs> um, and it was kind of like this, Heavenly Father, did you know it would be this hard for these really good YSAs to overcome pornography? Almost like Heavenly Father had miscalculated or um, underestimated the the challenge. And I, he kind of spoke to me that night. He says, no, I didn't set him up for fail. And he asked me, what have I done for them? And and the thought came to my mind as he's flooded the earth with temples at the same time that obviously the earth's flooded with pornography. And I've thought about that a lot. And I've thought that, you know the power of temple attendance for young people as part of helping them um, avoid this really clicks for me. Um, but I've, in our YSA stake, we talked about this a lot as bishops is what is the role of the temple in someone working to solve porn? And I think a lot of the YSAs just assumed they could not attend the temple if they were, had porn. And we did not have a fixed rule on that. There was nothing in the handbook that told me, anything specific about temple attendance and pornography. And so some YSAs, we'd jointly counsel together and decide the role of the temple, and they would feel like, I need to stay away from the temple for a period of time, and this will be part of my 13-week plan or whatever to be able to be worthy for the temple. But other YSAs, we felt different. We felt like they were doing everything they could on the things that they could directly control, like te- like scripture study, prayer, attending church, and and obviously pornography is within their control, but maybe not at that immediate moment. And we felt at times that maybe going to the temple, if they were doing everything they could on this list of, um, would help them. And so we, did, we, at times the YSAs with pornography would go to the temple. Um, neither of us speak for the church. Um, just any thoughts on, on that? Well, <clears throat> yes. <laughs> like that's another hour podcast. <laughs> uh, bishops have some important keys. And part of those keys are keys of discernment, priesthood keys. And there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of authority in that, but there's a lot of um, about those keys that um, sort of require a bishop to be in tune to the point where they can talk to somebody and treat each individual as an individual and what's best for them and receive it with that individual, the right inspiration and revelation that takes to prescribe or to design their, their escape from the trap. And uh, we've talked a lot about physical, emotional things, but the spiritual element is, is, the culminating part of all this and is, is critical because uh, many of them, like we talked about, are so self-criticizing that they might not take the sacrament for 
months. But that may be what they need. I agree. And and sitting with your priesthood leader, your bishop, who understands this, a priesthood leader could could design a program, could design a a pathway for, and help them and say, you know, I want you to take the sacrament in so many weeks or do this and we'll get you there. Going to the temple could be part of getting out of the trap. Going to the temple could be part of going coming out of the trap. But then I love what you're teaching about priesthood keys. If if the individual see it's the difference between being dismissive and striving. A bishop can dis- discern if someone is dismissive. It's not a big deal. I'm going to handle my gonna, own. Everybody's got a pornography problem. Not a big deal. I'll just... The pride thing is just not just keeping them from getting there, right? Or are they striving? They they come to their interviews. They're trying. They're doing everything you're asking them to do. So maybe taking the sacrament, maybe service. Maybe going to the temple. I love what King Benjamin teaches and what Alma teaches about retaining a remission of our sins. We look at those scriptures and say, okay, we've got to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take care of the poor. Those are elements. But what they're really saying is get out and serve mankind. And in current church terminology, go out and minister. Isn't that powerful? It's like, here's how you retain a remission of your sins. If you're, if you're going through the repentance process and you need to hit milestones, you need, you need help, you go do these things and you get that spiritual uplift from that. I love that we circled back to the spiritual part of this and I love... Um, the word strive, I wrote that down as soon as you said that. It's another word that it's like trap. I haven't thought a lot about the word strive, Tim, but I think of that to me, it creates a visual of there's no hope. I mean, there's no shame on that word. There's just, I'm, I'm not perfect. It doesn't say I'm perfect in the word strive. It just says I'm pointing in the right direction, have sincere efforts to get there. And I don't, I'm not there right now. And that's okay. That's a really good word, and I love, I've always felt the sacrament was a little bit more about, instead of looking back and rehashing bad stuff, um, a little bit more about looking forward and saying, this is where I'm going. So I I had, you know, there was a lot of different, I guess back to priesthood keys, a lot of times we'd handle the sacrament differently for different individuals, and some felt mm-hmm. not taking the sacrament was really helped them as part of striving. Mm-hmm. And some felt taking the sacrament. I'm, I'm pretty sensitive now to a homeward ironic priesthood holder not taking the sacrament because of the shame that creates. Um, and that's a whole nother subject. But I, I'm, I, I'm not a resident ward bishop. And I, but I just, that, you know, I've had, I just would be sensitive to an automatic, you don't take the sacrament because of this or that. And because of potentially the shame that can create to a young man as, the, as he's sitting on the road with his parents who are not aware of why he's taking the sacrament and the tray goes by and and maybe that's the right thing. I don't want to say it's not the right thing, but it's a pretty sensitive subject and can really create a lot of shame that then is often worse than whatever reason he's not taking the sacrament in the first place. Well, go back to guilt is hope. Repentance is, is great. Uh, sin is the burden. 
And see, there's the there's the counterfeit that the adversary tries to build into this by fooling us into thinking that repentance is burdensome and hard. No, that's the great part. That's the that's liberating a, element. Isn't that cool? And that's the prodigal son coming back with the Savior wrapping his arms around him. Yeah. Now, I think a young man participating in ordinance is different than taking the sacrament. So if an unma- a young man's, you know, working through stuff, being performing an ordinance like blessing and passing the sacrament is probably a, a different hurdle than just sitting on the row and taking the sacrament. And I think you're right. And both may be inappropriate, but there may be some middle ground in there. Taking the sacrament's a little different than performing an ordinance. Mm-hmm. Um, any concluding thoughts? This has been a great podcast. Well... Uh, it has been, and, and I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface. Uh, you've asked some wonderful questions, and I really appreciate the time and invitation to be here. Um, I I hope, if someone is listening to this, if you are, if you're in the trap, recognize it and go get help. There is help you can get out of the trap. There is escape. Your parents, a friend, a good bishop, someone out there is willing to be a non-judgmental, loving mentor for you and help you get out of this. If you're a parent or a spouse, there is help and hope. If you're in this gap, there is so much hope. And take care of it now so that it doesn't progress down the continuum to where it changes life and the solutions are different. Because now you have a chance to control your destiny. Um, Thank you, Tim Hollingshead, who's got big tears in his eyes as he gave that last minute. I hope everybody feels his spirit and the hope that comes with what he's sharing. Please go to free in 13. That's F-R-E-E-I-N and then 131313thenumber.com and you can um, access his resources. And Tim, thank you for um, being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler.